the platform was amazing, but if we didn't have the sales strategy, right? If we didn't have the customer success strategy, if we didn't have the analyst and research strategy, none of it would have happened, right? Like you really did need to be a 10 out of 10 on a bunch of different verticals to make what RS became. To to be clear, you guys sold for a billion dollars, right? Yeah. Another episode of Young Professors in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman. I'm with the YPE Denver chapter. Joined today with uh, Brooke Popel. Brooke, I, I should have clarified ahead of time. Is that did I pronounce your your name correctly? Nailed it on the very first try. You're, the, oh, awesome. you're one of the very few people that that have done that. <laughs> Excellent. So we got Brooke with us today. He's the co-founder and CEO of Arenia, uh, where he works with investors and business leaders in the renewable space as they transform their strategies to leverage advanced analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Uh, super stoked to talk to Brooke today. Brooke, you're in Calgary. Am I right? That's Yeah, that's correct. Cool. Man, I just love being able to do video chats and talk to people from all over the world. This is fantastic so well brooke we like to start every episode with a little intro with our guests or let our let our guests give kind of a background on themselves and chat about kind of how they started their careers and and how they got to where they were where they are now so uh, why don't you take us back to kind of the beginning where did you go to school i saw on linkedin you're a fellow mechanical engineer i am too so yeah that's, uh, that's pretty pretty cool I graduated in 2006 from the university of calgary mechanical engineering program i Got into that because it was the, it, I figured it was the degree that gave me the most amount of options after school. Yeah. It's like for those of us that, that don't know exactly what we want to do. Uh, yeah, mechanical engineering. What a great, it's, yeah. 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 It's a catch all for everything. You can kind of, can I could have anything. become a dentist or something like that if I felt like it. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I had friends that went up and became attorneys and yeah. Yeah. So you get all sorts of stuff. Uh, so how, how'd you get started after graduating school? What would, yeah. So I had a bit of, uh, I had a bit of a funny path into a career. I was I was a very poor student. I was a very poor engineering student. I was I was the dumbest person in most of my most of my like classes. Not, not like, financially poor, but uh, <laughs> well, not, not finan- it was well, it was it was both. No, it was both. Um, so when I when I left school, it was um it it was it was at the height of the oil boom of that of that time. Um, so like in that 2006 time frame, all my friends were getting these awesome high salary jobs at oil sand companies, construction companies focused on in Calgary, focused in oil or kind of natural gas development. And I was not at all up to the caliber of having a, a really high paying oil and gas job. So um, but I did take one course in university that was just a bit of an interest of mine, and it was on building simulations. There was one like simulating energy use in buildings, and the other one was um, it was it was by a guy named David Keith, who's who's a, if if you follow it all kind of climate science, David Keith is is a very kind of preeminent figure in that, and it and that really got me thinking about about energy. He was the most phenomenal professor I've ever had. And he just happened to be in Calgary for a brief period of time. I think since then, he's bounced around to a couple very high profile universities. And he's also done some work directly for some of Bill Gates's climate initiatives. So he was just, it was just a pleasure to sit there and listen to him for a year. But when I graduated, 
I kind of had this idea that I wanted to do something in that was a little bit different, and I had this building simulation course. And there was a company out of uh, Kitchener-Waterloo called Inter- Intermodal. And Intermodal um, was kind of, I think at the time, it was a 50-person company, and they wanted to start a Calgary office because Calgary was going through a massive uh, real estate boom right then, and they did environmentally friendly buildings. And so I had an uh, initial interview, and I'm one of the few people that got kicked up, like that, that graduated um, school with any knowledge of how to do these building simulations. Um, so it was kind of a shoe into that job, and it, it was a great. I learned um, there, there was a lot of passionate people at that company, but what was happening with me was I was coming home every night and working obsessively on a bunch of other stuff. So the first one was, it, it was uh, like I can remember Steve, and, and actually it's interesting that the, t- the timing of this because I think it was 15 years ago, a couple of days ago, that the iPhone was released, and I can literally remember sitting in, um, and, and at the time we were we had just launched the Calgary office, and, and there was a renovation going on. And we were um, huddled around this boardroom table. I can remember watching live Steve Jobs do the iPhone announcement. And I just got, it was, I, it was like a very like aha moment, I think, for a lot of people that, that had this, saw this surprise announcement kind of happen live. And so the first thing I did was go, went out and bought an iMac with the goal to start coding um, iPhone applications. And it's an important part of the story because it, it, will, it will tie back to where my where my career kind of went after that. Um, and so I, I would be obsessively um, doing these iPhone applications. And at the same time, another little hobby I had was doing my own investments. And I think I had like script together like five grand, and I was trading you know U.S. Steel and Microsoft, and and uh, I was I was getting pretty obsessive over doing that as well. And I wanted to. Um, get better at my own personal investing. And uh, my dad, or or I should say my stepdad, uh, is is a a big investor, has always done his own kind of investments. He got me on, he said, hey, there's this program called the CFA. And I'm from small town British Columbia, like the bank, the banker that I knew was the bank teller, you know, like I had zero exposure to any kind of like actual financial markets on any level, other than just playing around with him. And so I I took the CFA, the level one, and signed up for it purely with the goal. And it was it, looking back, it was actually really um, helpful to approach it from like not even trying to help my own career out necessarily, but just out of a sheer hobby. Because then I could actually approach it with like a, a, a hobbyist passion, as opposed to like, hey, I need to step on this um, step on this rung of the ladder to get to the next next level. And so I can also distinctly remember sitting there and cracking the books and going through the very first few questions that they ask you. And they kept talking about these analysts that were working uh, in financials. And I had no idea that people got paid to do stock market analysis. And I'm doing my own like <laughs> cash flow forecasts and present NPV models on like Netflix or whatever was was like I had. I remember I had a, um, a library card and their only reason I had a library card was there's this free it's free if you have a library card uh, subscription to value line and value line had all the kind of cleaned up financial metrics. And so I'd run all these cash flow models off value line data. And once I knew that analyst was a job that I could get paid for doing this thing that I was coming home after my day job and working like six hours at night, kind of either on an iPhone application or on, um, on the stocks valuations that I was doing, I was like, okay, I have to, 
I have to do that for a living. Like it just was totally like <laughs> eye opening. And, um, but what was really difficult was actually making a career switch. So here I am in a job doing building simulations and I was doing other stuff and building simulations. Like we had a solar project, solar community, um, down in a, in a little town called Okotoks, south of Calgary. Um, and the solar community is called Drake Landing. And if you ever want to see kind of one of the first communities of that type, it was solar thermal and storage. And it's, it's very cool. And I was doing all the commissioning and some of the controls, um, behind that. So I was doing a bunch of other stuff that was interesting, but it wasn't my, truly my passion. And um, just to clarify, the, the building simulation is that simulation of like utility scale electrical projects or actual building it's energy an actual efficiency. Building. Like, like, I am building a um, new uh, skyscraper and I want it to okay. be lead platinum and which okay. is like a, a ranking, right? So like a developer like Brookfield will want all of their buildings a certain lead status and lead is an acronym. I forget what it stands for now, yeah. but as part of that, you have to prove that your building is, you know, 25, 35, 40% better than an equivalent building. And you do that with a simulation. You say, okay, we're using, you know, better windows, better insulation, better mechanical systems um, to, to kind of prove that. And then you build a computer simulation okay. or computer model. Sure. So, um, so I was coming home and doing all this and I was trying to do a career switch. And at the time, you know, you're at Calgary. The only game in town is oil and gas uh, for a lot of like investment banking or uh, research jobs. And I think I put out, I'm going to say 30 or 40 resumes out on, on the job market and didn't even get an interview. Like literally I couldn't even get to the first stepping stone. And I was applying to a bunch of investment banks and, and more, more of a traditional route. And then this um, uh, interesting company came up called Ross Smith Energy Group. And they did um, a bit of a different um, bend on research in that it was much more of like a forensic, much more technical um, research than just kind of who you buy, who do you sell. Um, it was a lot of like, you know, what areas of these plays do you want to be in? Um, the shale boom was kind of in, I would say, inning kind of one or two at that time. And it was the very last, uh, job that I was going to apply for. Like if I didn't get this job, I was going to, I was going to do something else with my career. And I remember talking to, I guess she was my, yeah, she was my wife at the time. So we were married at the time. She's still my wife, which she was just my wife back then. Too, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so my wife, I said, Chris, you know, her name's Kristen. I, I can't bring myself to write yet another cover letter for this. And so she goes, okay, well, I'll, I'll let me write this one, you know, cover letter number 41. And she reads through and she's like, Brooke, you should really throw this iPhone application that you developed as a line in that. And so I said, okay, well, I said, well, it's kind of stupid. It doesn't really work. Right. Like it was, it was like, I wasn't a yeah. shattering application at all. To, to uh, you, it, it seems uh, very elementary, but to anyone else is like, Oh man, this guy made, made that. How cool. Yeah. And so what happened was it went to, um, uh, it went into the Ross Smith system and that line, the iPhone application thing, and I was still a weird candidate for them even to interview. Like I was probably five years older. Like I was well into my career at, the, at this point. And I was applying for an entry level position. So at the same time, I've got, you know, a kid at home, I've got a mortgage and I'm about to take a 40% salary cut to try to reset my career onto a path that I actually wanted to go down. And this is the end result yeah. of if you don't have your shit to, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast, but if you don't have oh, your yeah, shit together true. when you're, uh, when you're kind of outside of university, 
you're gonna you you will at some point, right? And so it just took me a few years longer, I think, than, than most people. Um, um, and I got the interview, and I got three or four more interviews, kind of meeting the rest of the team, and eventually got the job and started at the bottom rung of the ladder at Ross Smith Energy Group and started a career doing oil and gas research and, and love like to this day that first the first few years of that job was like the funnest I've ever had at work, working extremely hard. Um, but really in a very like creative environment. Man, that is so cool. I, I just want to highlight a couple of things that I, I took away from that story, right? You were essentially a bad engineer or you weren't a, an <laughs> expert at what, what you thought was the ideal job opportunities coming out of school, right? And because of that, you had to um, self-select and, and work on other stuff right, that gave you an opportunity and exposure and forced you to look for different opportunities, right? And you didn't even realize that jobs could exist doing what you enjoyed doing most, right? And because of that process, uh, you really were able to find a job and position that you could silo yourself into and and get access to that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. I, I think a lot of people don't recognize that often, that the world is such a malleable place and you can really create the job and career that you want if, if you continue learn, looking yeah. and working at it, right? Now, the thing is, is it it, it takes hustle. Like, I was getting at Absolutely. Like, I was working yeah. a full-time job and then working a full-time job after that, effectively. Yeah. But what, what was in, what, what fell, fell out of that is then when that second full-time job that I had became my actual job, I mean, it, that would have been 12 years ago. Like, I, I honestly love getting up to work every day for the past 12 years because I've always been working on something that I am extreme, like that I'm very, very passionate about because it started from a hobby. Yeah. Cool. So let's talk about Ross Smith then. How did yeah. that evolved and uh, let's just step through it as, as you see that. Yeah. So, I mean, it was like by the time I joined, so I joined in 2010, maybe maybe in, I think in March 2010, they'd been around for, since I think the late 90s. Um, it was started by a couple of ex-bankers out of a, a bank in town here called Peters & Co. And, again, very forensic approach. Six months after I started, oh, maybe a little bit longer than that, um, in early, I want to say 2011, they sold that business to a company called ITG. And ITG was a New York um, brokerage firm. And at the time um, – they were what's called an execution-only brokerage firm, which means they just provided trading services. So if you want to trade a stock, they can do that, Whereas versus a bank, which might provide trading services, but you can also buy research from. Now, during that time, and so we're post-financial crisis, obviously, a couple years out of it, right? And um, they realized they were in a bit of a secular decline in terms of the amount of liquidity they were able to get. So they went out and they bought two pure play research company. They bought a company called Majestic, who's, who um, used a lot of like consumer data and, and basically had a big pair trade on that was short BlackBerry, uh, long Apple, and all of their data uh, was showing them that. And, and that's really like the big trade that they made their name on. And then a few months after they bought Majestic, they bought Ross Smith. And so we all came into um, ITG um, and the Ross Smith had a, I want to say that when, when I was there and, and again, I'm a, like, you got to understand I'm junior associate, so I don't know the whole business at this time, but they had a bit of an arm's length, um, 
like they didn't have an internal sales team. So they always had, they, they always had the technical folks, but they never had the sales folks. They had, they had a deal with a company called Instanet that provided some of the sales. Now, when we moved over to ITG, we also got a, a fully integrated sales team as well. And so the, the, we, we, during that time at ITG, um, I think, I think we roughly tripled, um, the revenue of the company and, and we worked extremely hard, like, um, um, pulled long hours, uh, lots of trips to, you know, New York to sell the services, but it was also a lot of fun. Um, and still keep in touch with a lot of those ITG folks, uh, kind of to this day. Awesome. So did, did ITG then evolve into RS Energy Group or what was the? Okay. Yeah. So what ended up happening was, was ITG had a, had a bit of an SEC problem where they got, they, they had to pay an SEC fine for, it was pretty, uh, like it was kind of an esoteric rule, but it was basically due to, I I believe it boils down to like non-disclosure of a certain trading strategy they were doing. And so the, I know we're going back here, so I'm trying to recall my chain of events. Anyways, they paid the fine. There was a CEO switchover. And at the same time, we're, so we're this research shop in Calgary as part of this much larger company that's primarily in New York. So at the same time, um, Warburg Pincus was looking to make a play into kind of the data space, recognizing that there were two leaders. There was Drilling Info um, and um, IHS, and to kind of a lesser degree at the time, Wood McKenzie, um, who didn't really have, like, shale data. And Warburg was kind of looking to make an, an investment um, in that space, and we had basically everything like we had all the value add parts so we were we we were buying the data from data vendors and then we were layering on you know type curves capex you know our own perspective on some of these what what now is called analytics but we didn't really call it analytics we were just trying to make good investment decisions and so Werber carved us out um of itg and that's what launched that that entity of i want to say somewhere around a half dozen salespeople. And that were based in, in, um, mostly in New York and a team of about 40 to 50 analysts in Calgary became RS Energy Group, uh, with the backing of Warburg Pincus. I see. Yeah. And for the, for listeners that don't know, uh, right, the, the shale revolution or shale boom really had a huge gap in data that was available. And it was kind of a, a data rush, kind of like a gold rush. But um, and you mentioned two groups, Drilling Info and IHS, that were incumbents or kind of front runners for data acquisition um, that would mine public data and then make it available and accessible to oil and gas companies or banks or investors or anyone else that was looking to to get into the space, right? And then you guys tr- made an entry also that characterized that correctly. Exactly. So all this data is publicly available. Right. Or I should say the vast majority of it. And there, there were a lot of interns, myself included, like my, my internship in 2011. My whole job was to go to the North Dakota public website, right? And, <laughs> and read PDFs and put data into an access database. So I, yeah. which was a miserable job, but like, you know, 70 of my peers had an identical job around that time. You know, that exactly. was like, oh my God, that this and is so miserable. The value that, yeah, exactly. And so what we would do is basically automate whatever it is you were doing. Right. Or we would hire a team of 30, you know, interns 
that would scrape, like, like, you know, grab data from those same PDFs or figure out a way that we could automate that scraping process or figure out a way that we could offshore it or do kind of like an Amazon Turk situation. And there's a lot of data that's available. Some of the production data in certain areas is pretty easy. And some of the production data in other areas, you need like, um, algorithms and machine learning models to kind of correct. And yeah. then you get down to like, well, who has the best model to fill in, you know, this, make this poor data actually good data. And so it's a bit of an arms race there. So we, we, um, RS, one of the first things we did was, you know, we're growing the team. Manoj uh, Nikonj and Jim Gerald were, were co-CEOs of the company. They put together the rest of the C-suite, uh, like CFO, CTO, uh, CRO, Chief, Chief Revenue Officer, for those that aren't kind of familiar with some of the nomenclature. Um, CTO is, is Chief Technology Officer, and we really got like a banger team of, in that C-suite kind of put together. Um, and then they went out and bought a company called Nathport. Nathport came with um, some of the data mapped, but not a very good platform. And we were working on a really good platform, right? And and Nathport filled in this layer of data that we kind of needed. And by uh, platform, you mean like uh, an online visualization or a tool to help users uh, interpret the data, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so um, the the and and that was kind of the big vision of the company is to have this this platform and it was really the thing that like Manoj, you know, had the 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 perspective of what was kind of missing in the market was this really easy to use, intuitive platform that was kind of like it's think of like Spotfire, but with um uh but customized towards doing specific oil and gas workflows that was extremely fast and all happened within your browser. And it needed um data as feedstock. And so Napport came not only with the data, but also with a data science team. And so those so uh, those data science teams, I think some of them are still at at the company that, that entered. So it's been, uh, they've yeah. had a long ride there. So how, how are you positioned, and for those that don't know, Spotfire is a data visualization tool similar to Power BI, um, yeah, to generate charts and, and helpful or useful visuals, right, to, to generate uh, data analytics. Um, so what, what was your role with RS or how'd you, how'd you get plugged into the RS team to be part of this group? Yeah. So, I mean, I start, so like I said, I started at the very bottom of the, of the company, like literally, yeah. you know, if there was a pizza run to be had, I was the guy that like had to go to the pizza shop and pick it up for the rest <laughs> of the team. Like they, they made it very clear where, where, where I sat in the totem pole. Uh, and I was, I was, I was happy as a clam to, to do it. Um, uh, but I, I, so I was on the Canadian team. So I focused on all the Canadian, um, assets, like looking at Montney, Duvernay, um, Cardium, some of the conventional stuff and really stayed there, um, through RS and maybe into year one of, of RS. And then my role changed a little bit. So, um, one of the things we did was we needed a bit like, so at the time, um, we needed a stopgap platform. Uh, one of the things we did was, so, uh, and I'm going to just back up a bit, you know, there's tens of thousands of these shale wells, which are horizontal wells. And one of the things we did really well was we could characterize the economic profile of every single one of them. So we'd know the operating cost of every single one, or we'd roughly be able to estimate it, you know, get a cap, get the amount it cost. And then we'd be able to say stuff like, well, what is this well worth at $60? 
oil price and $3 gas price. Or we could say, when does this well, what, what oil and gas price is, does this well require to earn a 10% rate of return? And the first year we did it, we had kind of 10,000 wells. Uh, the next year we had 20, the next year we had 50, and then we had you know, a hundred thousand and we had 150,000. So the first thing, the first little weird job that I had in RS that wasn't part of that Canadian team was standing up this kind of stopgap measure. And the, the, we hired a developer, um, named Stephen Main, who's a, who's a great guy. He's kind of senior dev. I, I, I don't know if he was the first dev that de- software developer that we hired, but he, he was, if not, he was pretty close and he made this thing, made this little kind of Excel based thing where you could check in and out, um, these wells and would be able to manage the amount of data that we had at the time as just a bit of a gap between when we stopped subscribing to other people's data and when we had our own data orchestrated. And he called it Cornet, which is kind of funny because the RS, like the premier platform of Prism, we called Core. So this name that he kind of he came up with kind of uh, lived on. And then and then the other thing we wanted to do was um we really didn't have a great way to show capital market clients like hedge funds, pension funds, like um, long onlys, like fidelities of the world, money managers, how this data that in analytics we were working on could like help them make in, like trade stocks. Um, and so we formed a capital markets team that's now is currently being ran by a phenomenal analyst named Dame Gregoris, um, who's still at the company. Um, but we stood that team up and Dane was one of the, the founding members of that team as well to come up with these analytics that, that, you know, our, our clients could use, um, decline rates, capital efficiency, stuff that they could figure out how to rank operators. And then I want to say in 2018, I had another major kind of career switch. So throughout that whole period at Ross Smith and then ITG, I'm doing pretty much the same kind of work. It's very technical on the phone, talking to clients, um, and our CRO, so that basically the, the, the guy who heads up all the sales and marketing efforts was this guy named uh, Matt Johnson. And he's at a, he's at a company called Mitratech right now and, and in, a, in a similar role over there. He had uh, a great idea to form what we call the customer success team. Uh, and the customer success team was a group of geologists, engineers, like, like not analysts, but industry professionals. Um, that would that that because our the deals that we would sign would be they're very think of it like imagine it's the most expensive software subscription some of these companies have, and our we needed to make sure that that these companies were using the platform and getting a lot of value out of it. So we would actually assign, hey, you know, you customer success person X, you've got these five companies, and those five companies account for Y million dollars of revenue and you're responsible for making sure they're you're basically a product of uh, evangelists right you're making sure that they're using the, the, the platform um, so he stood up this customer success team and and in addition to that um, we were uh, our company was growing incredibly fast and it was being getting to be a, a logistical challenge to staff up meetings. And when you're, and the way we sold is we sold directly into the C-suite of these companies or at a high of level as possible. And, and when you're selling at that high level, you kind of need, you need to staff the other side of the table with folks who have kind of seen it all, but who also can do, can sell the product and talk about the value of the product. Um, but also kind of get into the weeds from a technical standpoint. And I kind of fit that bill. 
So I got sent. So we were having all these logistical problems of how to how to staff up these sales meetings, and when you know, and the sales meetings are critical. So you don't want to delay them by a week or two weeks when you got the time the CEO of the target company uh, has availability. You know, that's when you're doing the meeting. So we kind of got together, and I I volunteered. I said, look, you know, I didn't want them. To feel like if, if and at the time it was it was the, the co-CEO Jim Gerald that I was, I was talking to, I didn't want him to feel like he couldn't ask me because I have a wife and three kids, um, and I, so I basically volunteered like, hey, if you need someone to move to Houston for the next year or so to, to kind of help out, we hired a great guy to manage the customer success team named Jonathan Garrett, so that was in a great role, um, but he was brand new to that role and. Uh, the sales team needed someone. And I said, look, I'll volunteer. So I moved in 2018, moved me and my family down to Houston uh, for for about a year up until we sold the company to really take on a bit of a sales kind of role down there and help the sales team uh, effectively close deals and, and, and make sales. And then also help some of our customers kind of from a more technical perspective. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I, I was one of those customers that uh, purchased the tool, right? And you're, you're exactly right. You had, the, you had the DI subscription that was X number of dollars and the IHS subscription that was Y number of dollars. And X plus Y was uh, still probably half the cost of Z, which was your guys' cost. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> but, the val- but we still bought the tool, right? Because the value was so good. It was so much better than anything else so that was better. out there, yeah. And for the audience or anyone that is unfamiliar with this, which I suspect many, many might be, but it's... It, yeah, you guys generated a product that allowed the shale industry, the oil and gas industry that was focused on shale and any anywhere else in oil and gas, but I'd say probably specifically targeted to shale, that any operator, service company, uh, investment arm of a bank or hedge fund or anything else could leverage and utilize this tool for market intelligence and gain insights about what was happening, right? Because this was an evolving space. I mean, shale... Uh, data was so valuable because no one knew what the right answer was. Everyone knew that there was just a lot more barrels coming out of the ground, right? And we were making a lot more gas, but like, what was the secret sauce? What was the best recipe? Uh, we don't know. Let's, let's look at what everyone else is doing. And you guys generated a product or made a product that was better than anyone else and allowed people to see trends and results faster with more data, more wells. I mean, you talk about, you know, being able to do it quickly. Like I remember, trying to load 100,000 wells in the access database and run decline curves and in access and you know or Valnav or some other tools and it, it just take forever right and you yeah. guys developed some machine learning with your platform that was just uh, I, I really appreciated it so. yeah and i think that if if you look back like the the success like the platform was amazing but it was a full if we didn't have the sales strategy right if we didn't have the customer success strategy, if we didn't have the analyst and research strategy, none of it would have happened, right? Like you really did need to be a 10 out of 10 on a bunch of different verticals to make what RS be- became. Um, and so for the folks who aren't, who are less familiar with the story, like it wasn't like we were a startup that came from zero to a unicorn, like billion dollar valuation kind of status. Um, yes. To, to be clear, you guys sold for a billion dollars to Enbrix, right? Yeah, but we we were a, like we were a forty fifty person company when Warburg Pincus carved us out. So it wasn't like I mean the growth was incredible, um, and, but it wasn't a zero to a, a zero to a billion. 
it was over 30 years. Like it kind of took the, the team 30 years to become an overnight success. Um, but we had a lot of foundational elements stood up, right? Like what Prism did was automate what our analysts were doing. So when our analysts came up with like break evens and typers, like, oh, like what fundamentally what it, what it was, and we even referred to it like this early on was we called it an analyst in a box. Like that was the dream of the platform when on, on day one of our synergy was let's make an analyst in a box. And um, so the roadmap with our research, like we had 20 years of, of well, not quite 20 years of research, well, pretty close, 20 years of research, let's say, when we went out to create the platform. And um, the, you know, the financial strategy was bang on. The sales strategy was bang on. The technology strategy was bang on. Like we just had a bunch of stuff that worked out. Um, so the platform was one thing, but like we couldn't have, for example, we, if we weren't charging a high price point, we wouldn't have been able to innovate as much as we did. Right. So when we go and talk about when we, when we talk to clients about the value that they're getting from it, a lot of the value that we described is like, look, we are heavily reinvesting into this platform. And what you're seeing right now, while it's awesome, is literally the beginning of what we're doing. And then we added a bunch more features kind of even on top of that. So our clients were generally like delighted with what they were what they were seeing. Yeah. So it, I mean if you can talk about it, I'm interested in kind of when you guys reached the point that you realized you wanted to sell or divest. Uh walk walk us through that process. Yeah, you know it was um so I was in so I'm kind of one step removed from it. So I'm sitting in sure. Houston at this point when 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 a lot of these decisions are happening. I think it was a function of a couple of things. Like I think Warburg Pincus's holding period was kind of five around five years, and we were we were approaching that. Um and I think we um uh it, it, like I'm sure for a variety of reasons it was just kind of time. We knew there was going to be some interest in the market. For what we had done, we were we knew we were at this um, massive upward uh, trajectory, and so they started they started a process. It got a lot of interest, and um, I would say our number one competitor at the time. So Drilling Info rebranded to become Inveris, um, and they had bought a bunch of I don't want to call them small companies because some of these companies were like pretty pretty large, but they weren't a billion dollar company. Um, and Inveris ended up uh, being the one that, that bought us. Um, and I think I want to say that deal closed in right at the end of 2019. I think we announced in early 2020. Yeah. Kudos to you and, and any work that you did with the sales team, because for as far as I mean, I've interacted with a lot of software vendors and purchased a lot of software products. Uh, the engagement that you guys had with customers, from my perspective, was unparalleled yeah so, it was it was for whatever really, contribution you had in that yeah. well done brooke <laughs> yeah there's a uh there's a i forget if it's like the ben horowitz book or the peter thiel book but it, there's a story in one of them that says like you know the uh the, the engineers at a certain software company kind of went to the bosses one day and said how come all the salespeople are are driving bmws and we're driving you know our volkswagen to work and uh the the boss goes and they're like well do you want to do sales and they're like no and they just kind of go well that's why right like sales is a is a very tough job and to do sales at the level that we were doing at and threading the needles that we were threading and and going through the org charts that way the way we were going through the strategy that was behind every single approach to sales how can we 
you know, how can we close it? How can we show them value? What is, what is, um, like, what is driving, um, uh, their, this client's buying decision? I mean, it was, it was surgical, right? And we had, uh, a phenomenal strategy, phenomenal, uh, marketing team, um, led, um, uh, uh by a woman named Ashley Estelette and a guy named Jonathan Garrett ran the, um, ran the customer success team and he, they're both just phenomenal individuals and had great teams working for them. And, it, and they both reported up to Matt Johnson, um, who kind of called a lot of those plays. So it just ended up being, it was a, it was a, it, from my perspective coming from like a technical role and knowing that really like, I'm not a big believer in like your career should be like a utility belt. We're just going around and finding these skills because I think, what you get at the end of that is just a little bit of a muddy skill set, right? Like you should be yeah. deep in a few areas and you don't have to be this well-rounded employee to, to get further in your career. One of the things I did want was sales experience. And so it's great to be in that environment at that time to get that experience. Yeah, that's awesome. So that kind of brings us to uh, the sale to Enverus. Um did, did you end up staying on for a time, or did you transition away from the the org with the sale? Yeah, in Veris, um, so we we did the uh, helped out on the integration. Um, a few people kind of peeled off, like like our C suite peeled off because they had their their their, their team they wanted to go to market yeah. with. Um, everyone landed in kind of all their C suites landed in kind of great positions. I mean, they had a pretty phenomenal story behind them. And I stuck on the, it was actually a very kind of positive experience actually for me where I, they, they kind of let me run a couple things. Um, we were early on, um, in kind of scraping some of the, um, emissions data that eventually became the Inveris, uh, ESG product. And so that was something that, that I worked on for about a year and then worked a lot on trying to revamp some of their international stuff as well. They've got a great international team of, uh, scouts based out of the UK, a few, a few, a few kind of globally, um, couple in Houston. Um, and so I ran that team and the ESG kind of initiative, uh, for a bit. And then I would say I was there for, I want to say 11 months and, and I left in kind of December of 2020 to, to start up Arenia. Okay. Cool. Well, let's talk about Arenia. So, what what uh what are you guys trying to accomplish? What's the opportunity? So, the general theory behind it is, um, in order for uh, uh in order to accelerate the energy transition, these investments need to be making more money, right? And more money will get more investments, and it's really the only way this thing's gonna gonna move forward. And at the same time, today or I shouldn't say today, uh, probably pretty close. There's around $50 billion a year invested in energy transition assets. And that's in America. And that's from a Princeton study called Net Zero America. Uh, that's phenomenal, like 200-page presentation. I highly recommend everyone check it out because it really does explain some of these some of these trends in a, in a pretty pretty straightforward way. That $50 billion needs to go to $200 billion as soon as possible for any kind of reasonable carbon zero goal to happen between now and like say 2050. There's just no other way to skin the cat, like short of any kind of like, you know, technology improvement that, that none of us really know about right now. 
And you don't get a 4x in investment by adding four times the amount of consultants. You don't get four times the amount of investing by adding four times the amount of people. What you really need is a, a platform of data analytics and subject matter experts to be able to amortize a lot of this effort. So you think, you know, you were talking about, you know, you as an intern pulling down the North Dakota data. That exists right now in energy transition stuff, right? Like that's the, instead of North Dakota, it's the EIA. Okay. And there's a lot of data that exists there. Some of it's clean. Some of it's not. Some of it requires a lot of upgrading of the data. Um, but without this underpinning of data, the space won't be liquid enough to be able to handle that $200 billion of, inv- of investment. And so what we're doing is building a data and analytics platform. Um, that really provides that base level of required information. Without any of this information, uh, investors in the sector are going to make erroneous uh, decisions and lose money or at least not optimize their returns. And so our um, kind of mantra is, look, we're going to accelerate the energy transition and we're doing it in the way that makes the most sense, which is helping folks make more money in it so that they're incentivized to, to participate. Does a tool like this exist now or is this kind of a first of the kind for the space? You, you know, when we, when I expected there to be something out there when we launched and that we would have, um, a lot of, uh, competition in the space, um, just because it seemed like such a hot space going into. But we have ran into very little in the way of real competition. I think a lot of it is, there's a lot of kind of data providers out there and there's a lot of, uh, thematic research like Bloomberg New Energy Finance is phenomenal research and they have some kind of forecasts and um, uh, a bit of data in it and then there's other companies like um, SNL that have a lot of just like base level data um, but there isn't really anything that bridges the, the gap between those two and you can do a lot of thematic stuff by, you know, looking at data, right? Looking at granular data and doing trends and trying to figure stuff out. Um, and that's kind of, so that's kind of where we're, where we enter the picture is how can we take this data and add more and more analytics on top of it to make something that is actually consumable commercially that actually helps our clients make, uh, differentiated investment decisions. And uh, it really starts with shining a bright light on the data. And some of it's uncomfortable. Like some of this stuff says some decisions people are making aren't great, right? Like <laughs> like, like some of the contracts no. that are being signed for, for long-term power prices aren't great. Yeah. But um, you need to know that. Like you can't just put your head in the sand and pretend these things aren't happening. Data, like if you think of – so the analogy I like to use is like when people go and, and we don't have Zillow in Canada, but for sure access to data that Zillow provides and the analytics that Zillow provides accelerates your ability to buy a house. It's easier to look for a house. It's easier to find a house that's for sale. It's easier to get comfort and benchmark around neighborhoods and yada, yada, yada. That is we're building that for energy transition. Gotcha. An energy transition, meaning transitioning away from oil and gas development, uh, specifically to renewable projects? So we do uh, renewable uh, CCUS and renewable fuels as well as what we're focused on. So we're not focused on oil and gas production, right? Yeah. That's that's a well-served 
space. I mean, we built, you know, it's part of the team that built the the company that, that, that did that. Um, but this space isn't at all like on really on any level. Uh, and we've gotten like feedback that would, um, like we had one senior banker at like a bulge bracket investment bank say he's been looking at data in the power market since 1998 and we're the first differentiated product he's seen <laughs> since the first product he saw. Um, so the response has been uh, pretty incredible from a, um, from just a feedback standpoint, some of the original stuff that we're working on, but it's all that like, like oil, it's not some like, I mean, I've been oil and gas for, 12 years prior to being in kind of uh, more focused on like energy transition stuff, but energy transition um, primarily means zero carbon, right? Like, I mean, when we get right down to it, no one, like if, if somehow carbon was good for all of us, no one would care about burning oil and gas, right? If we lived in that world. Um, So carbon is the issue, right? And there's other emissions. Like, I mean, obviously like oil and gas production produces methane and things like that. And, and, and arguably is even worse than, than carbon at the, at, in, in some, you know, in, in some kind of production environments. Um, yeah. uh, so that's why we focus on CCUS because eventually all of this oil, and it, I don't know how comfort, co- controversial this statement's going to be, but I believe it. Every barrel of oil that's going to come out of the ground is going to need to be proven to be carbon zero, full stop. Uh, and the world, at the same time, the world needs more energy, not less, right? Like we, we're, we're in a very envious position globally. You know, you win the ovarian lottery and you come out a Canadian or an American and, and you're in pretty good shape, relatively yeah. speaking, for the rest of your life. There's a lot of places in, around the world where the sources of energy is like burning wood or dung or, you know, a very like dirty sources of energy. And those societies, are going to need massive amounts of energy to industrialize. So it's not some anti-oil and gas. That's not the, that's not our bend whatsoever. It's how do, how do we accelerate this thing? Because we know we're going down a path right now as a society, uh, that's not going to leave us in a very sustainable future. And what can, what are the things we can do now to help work on that? And those things don't include stop drilling oil and gas wells. Right. Yeah. Those things include how do we make that oil and gas carbon zero or carbon negative? Yeah, I certainly got my own thesis about how that's going to unfold. But this interview is about you, so we'll, we'll keep the focus, <laughs> we'll focus chat on after. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll chat after. Um, so who, who are some of your ideal uh, customers uh, for this, this platform, this data? I mean, basically, anyone looking at energy transition investors is an ideal client. We have we have clients that are on the platform only for renewable fuel stuff, only for CCUS stuff. Um, we have clients that get the full that that you know do renewables, do um, RNG, um, do CCUS, and so they get the wider spectrum of it. And we have some clients that are just using it for uh, for renewables. Um, so okay. basically, if so you're like developers, utilities, investors, private equity companies. Private equity, investment banks, um, developers, yeah, utilities. Um, we have a couple uh, uh, royalties in renewables. It's actually a bit of a growing industry, and so we've got a couple firms that that do um, uh, royalties in the space. That's been kind of an interesting um, uh, tangent for us. Dude, uh, but really, we just if you, interviewed a guy that's trying to create a new contract for energy rights. Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll have to yeah let you listen. There, it's pretty great. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. There's so it's a it's it's basically if you're putting money to work in energy transition themes um, that are real assets, right? So not developing the latest battery technology, right? We're not going to be able to help you out, you know, on the physics behind that. But if you if you're a data driven organization and you're investing in anything in energy transition, you're a potential prospect for us. Gotcha. Now you said net zero or zero emission technologies. Um, does that include nuclear? Any nuclear spin? So we're not. I mean, it, I hope so, right? We're not really yeah. focused on it because there's it's it's such a slow moving um, animal. But there's a lot of like kind of new kind of small uh, fusion companies been popping up. But where we really add value is in a data driven approach, right? So if there's not 30 of them or 50 of them or 100 of them. Yeah. We can comment on like, hey, if it does what it says it's going to do, you know, it's going to kind of do this to power price markets in the in, in the in the area. But what we can't, what I don't want us to be able to do is like we un- pretend that we understand the physics of this thing because we're not we're not the you know popular mechanics of energy transition. We're the data right. analytics work. So if I can't draw a trend line through it, it's kind of hard for us to, to speak intelligently about what's happening. Yeah. That makes sense. So, and the nuclear space in particular, it's, it's been flat or declining and very, very consistent, right? It's one of the trademarks or hallmarks of, of nuclear, right? Um, but to, to your point, probably the advancement is coming from newer technologies and that's not your guys' wheelhouse. You're yeah. looking at, so what, what kind of data are you guys capturing to share and assimilate and analyze for your customers? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, it's mostly, um, mostly geospatial. Right. But then then. So, you know, where are these projects? Um, What kind of contracts are associated with them? What are the and then from there you can calculate, like, what are the revenues? What are the underlying economics? um, What are forecasts? Right. Like there's each each region has what's called an interconnection queue, which is basically a long list of projects that are being proposed. And there's a lot of just vapor projects on there. Right. There's projects that won't see the light of day. So a lot of what we do is like, how do we go through and like risk? Those those projects and come up with a um, a forecast of what we think the um, uh, what we think that space is going to look like um, for like RNG you know looking at where um, these farms are cattle and swine farms to kind of uh, basically where you're finding brown gold we put a report out called brown gold uh, uh, <laughs> so there was you know where are you sourcing manure and how can you blend that manure with organic waste as well to increase um, uh, the efficiency of the digester. Um, yeah. And there's a lot so of like, geospatial data the, like that. That's the renewable natural gas, right? Or you're renewable you're collecting gas. methane off of uh, what we call bio-emitting sources, right? Yeah. That, uh, that you then capture and either burn or sell or sequester, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's there's like, I mean, there's a renewable fuel standard out of California that kind of drives, and, and I guess Oregon too, uh, that kind of drives a lot of the underlying economics of that industry. And it's been a very, like, uh, um, very popular, like very hot industry, I'll say, if, like, um, uh, in terms of, in terms of the, the rate of acceleration in it. Um, and so what we, what we're doing is kind of looking at, um, optimized locations for some of the, some of these, um, uh, 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 facilities um and then we did we've done a bit on like the electric vehicle space as well kind of looking at um charging station locations um uh and, but most i would say two-thirds to three-quarters of what we do is like real 
you know, wind, solar, battery storage work. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see facing uh, the organization and the industry space? In the next so our organization, our biggest challenge is finding people, like finding talent, right? It's, it's, yeah. a, um, it's a prevailing uh, theme in today's world. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, we've been able to attract phenomenal talent. Like, uh, like, don't get me wrong. We, we the, the team that we put together, we're punching way above our weight class in terms of like what the type of talent we ought to be able to get. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a, a, a bunch of um, high, very tenured professionals that are on the team. And, and um, it's been kind of a pleasure watching it all come together and seeing how they interact with with the rest of the team. But finding people like we've got. You know, we're we're looking to hire another at least 20 people this year. We've got 30 people on the team kind of right now, and we've got tons of job positions open. So if anyone's out there listening and you're, you know, young professional <laughs> in energy and you want to go to the arendia.com, yeah, we've got we've, we're, we're out looking. And, and the, the crazy thing is that um, we, we built the company through COVID. And, and before we started the, the, the pod, you and I were kind of chatting about that. And um, so we didn't have an option. Like, like we, we weren't able to tell people where to work. It was like the world was shut down. You were working remotely first. So we now have a small office in Calgary, and we have a small office in, of all places, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where we've got a couple of the, the team down there. But everyone else is um, everyone else is remote and remote first. So we can really hire out of, out of Almost anywhere. I'd prefer to hire out of some of the places where we already have people, but um, but we're open to almost anything. In terms who's, of like, who's your ideal staff or employee? What, what do they look like? You, you mentioned punching above their weight class, and then you emailed me previously. You, you had mentioned that you think young professionals uh, will t- often work way harder and sometimes outperform seasoned professionals. So uh, yeah, I mean that's my so. I'm, I'm I mean I am turning forty this year, which puts me. I uh, like yeah, to Brooke, sit. you look like you're 26. Yeah, right. <laughs> I've got a filter on the uh, Teams meeting here, so no. But um, so I I used to joke because we were hiring all these millennials, and technically the millennial generation starts in 1982. So I used to say, yeah. well, I'm like 15 years older than some of the people we were hiring that were actually from the same generation. But that millennial generation got an incredibly bad rap. And I don't know how it happened because we would hire these millennials and they were animals. Like they, they got after it. And part of that was we gave them fun work to do. And so my experience with hiring young people has never, ever, ever been one of, I never hired a young person and wish I had hired a more seasoned person. Right. It's ne- It's just, it, you always can, you can mentor them. You can, you, I mean, they are, people are hungry, right? People want to work in a fun environment. You just got to give it to them. And some of that stuff is you've got to get out of their way too. Like I basically spent my career trying to get out of people's way as much as possible so that I wasn't, you know, stuck in the mud. And it led me down some kind of unique areas. Like, you know, in order to move to Houston, I had to give up the teams that I was running. Right. So I went to, you know, I went to having like 15 or 20 people reporting to me or something like that to having zero, right? You've kind of got to, if you're going about it the right way, you've got to try to work yourself out of a job. And that usually means some young, hungry person is going to take it from you. And you've got to be yeah. okay with it. So it's been, that part's been great. And yeah, our ideal candidate is someone um, who's super passionate, uh, likes data, likes analytics. And I'm talking more on the analyst team right now. And is passionate about the energy transition. A lot, like we have enough subject matter expertise in the company that usually we can fill in whatever gaps we want. 
And then on the, the software developer side of, of the business, uh, again, it's finding people who are passionate, but also because we're like, you know, a scaling up company, there's a bunch of like, it's not a normal job in terms of like a, yeah. it's not a big company. There's not a lot of infrastructure set up for people. So you've also got to be okay with the kind of a bit of the chaos, if you will, that comes along with that. And you've got to be a really resilient person because you're going to be asked to do a lot of stuff that don't aren't necessarily part of your job description. Right. But anyone that works for a small company, that that's a huge benefit in my mind, or that has always been. I I've think for big companies and I've worked for small companies and it's, yeah. I, know, I think it's way, way more fun for a small team. Yeah. I've never worked for a big company. So I've always kind of been in that small company. Well, I guess RS towards the end was pretty big, but it yeah. wasn't like a thousand people. It was like 400 people. Yeah. I, I like the, I like the chaos and I like the kind of muck that comes along with being a small company. Cool. Brooke, what's uh, the transition to a couple of questions that we ask most of our guests. So what's uh, what's one thing about the energy sector or the energy transition that, uh, that concerns you or keeps you up at night? You know, I, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have said something like it's not moving fast enough, but we're, and, and it may not be the best metaphor but like arenia is at the coal face of a lot of this stuff right like we're talking to the most sophisticated investors putting money to work in this and they are moving fast now like it's it's a full-on sprint there there's capital available the capital is form is is um uh is is surrounding these initiatives and the technical teams that we've seen in our private equity clients the types of folks that they're hiring they are gearing up to spend money in carbon zero energy, in renewables, in storage. Like, it's happening. Nothing about the energy transition keeps me up at night. Like, the right moves are being made, as far as I can tell. This thing's going to take time. Like, we're talking about 20 the, – the end line is 2050. Companies are making money in it, right? Like, the, the like their capital wouldn't be form, formula, like forming around this space if it wasn't. Um, it just feels like there's been for the past two years kind of this taking a big backswing and then now we're starting to make contact with the ball. So I don't, I don't, I'm not, cons- I'm not concerned. We're going to go through the motions and there's going to be winners and losers, but I'm not concer- concerned anymore that we're making bad decisions. I think we're making yeah. the right decisions right now and I think we're going at it in the right way. We probably need, probably needs to be like a better, like a more concrete price put on carbon. There probably yeah. needs to be maybe a rethink of what nature-based uh, carbon offsets look like that are basically yeah. planting more trees. There's there's some things on the fringe. I mean, carbon pricing is not really on the fringe, but there's some things on the periphery that need to get done. But we're not um, – no one internally in these companies that are really putting money to work – is having the conversation around should we or shouldn't we, right? Yeah. Now the conversation is, okay, we've decided to do it. How, how are we going to do it? Now we're in execution mode. So, I, yeah, I mean, I wish I had a better answer for you, but maybe it's an optimistic <laughs> answer. But I don't have – I mean, it's Good. it's moving. It's, and it's moving very yeah. fast. Oh, that's, that's really exciting. That's a great perspective. I kind of think the – the big unknown to me that I think gets fleshed out probably in the next five years is a creation of a carbon exchange that is more concrete or more tangible 
or perhaps more versatile than what exists now in many markets, right? Yeah. And there's, there's going to be, there are, t- there are companies meeting that call, right? Like there's, um, a, a, a Canadian company called Valadier that was a startup in, yep. in, in Calgary and, and Toronto. And I think they have offices. I just interviewed them too. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they do a lot of interesting kind of verification around that. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more. Um, our main investor is also an investor in a company called Project Canary, um, that does a lot of kind of this kind of monitoring. I think you're going to see that space get significantly bigger. Like the way I think about it is like, if it's going to cost you about 70, like call, let's say it's 50 to 75 bucks to fully abate a barrel of oil's carbon. That market is just as big as the oil market is today, yeah. right? Like at, at fifty to seventy-five barrel dollars a barrel oil, or, or eighty bucks, or wherever it is right now, those are similarly sized markets, and that gives you some perspective of just how big what what you just outlined is going to be on an energy balance basis. Like if I looked at it from my engineering background, it, it it doesn't make sense yet. Me, right? Like you, you got to have a super cheap electricity source, a free electricity source, which could be generated from renewables when there's overcapacity, right? Yeah. When there's yeah. So I, I think it'll be interesting to watch that unfold. Um, what advice do you have for young professionals that are in the space now? I mean, you mentioned work. I, I heard work hard uh, <laughs> and and be be great at your job and be willing to do a lot of different things. But anything else? Um, I I think um. Choosing the right job is an under. I I ta- gave a talk a few years ago, and I kind of mentioned how important it was to start out on the right job, and and I got some funny looks. Um, but I do believe, and I my perspective is, I started out on the wrong job, right? I started out yeah. in a job that was probably in the right industry, but that I wasn't really passionate about. Like I wouldn't go to school to be passionate about, you know, building simulations in school. But there's people who are really passionate about it. So I would say figure out whatever, like your career is going to be 30 or 40 years, right? You don't want to spend five of that or 10 of that in a job you're not passionate about. So that, that first career step shouldn't be taken lightly. And I think maybe I took it a little bit lightly, right? Like I was just like, okay, hey, I just want to get a job. And there's probably, you know, reasons why I had to do that, mostly monetary, but I, I would say just pick a job that you're passionate about that doesn't that you don't think will feel like work because you're going to spend half your life doing it. Yeah, great advice. Cool. Well, let's close. Uh, I mean, you you gave a pretty optimistic note about the future, but uh, anything anything else that you want to say about Arenia or uh, predictions for for the energy future? The one thing I would say is if if COVID has taught us anything. It's that humans are incredibly bad when they're sitting on a exponential curve and thinking it's a linear curve. And I'll just leave everyone with that and wondering how it might apply to the energy transition. <laughs> that's, uh, that's awesome. That's, that's probably going to keep me up at night. <laughs> cool. Well, Brooke, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. And uh, Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mark. 